I think, in a digital architecture, which is global, you know, this whole idea of the global village, right? This whole idea of a global society. Well, if everything, if the state is now global, then you've got these two kind of opposing forces that are vying for each other. And it's almost like political culture has become a choice of A or B. again for joining us here at the Interesting Times Podcast. Uh, hope everyone's doing well. Today's episode is going to be a discussion with my good friend and frequent collaborator, Dr. James Bacho. Uh, and we're going to be taking a look at some of the work of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And as a kind of basis for our discussion, we're going to be using a recent book published by Graham Garrard called Rousseau's Counter-Enlightenment, a Republican Critique of the Philosophs. But this is used more as a really excellent vehicle to get at some of the more um, interesting insights of this enigmatic philosopher who really covers the gamut in areas of political um, and philosophical thought. Uh, he is someone who is also accomplished as a playwright, as a novelist, actually developed a new form of musical notation uh, as a side project. So just a really fascinating individual who contributed a lot to um, the arts and intellectual thought in, in just numerous areas that is almost hard to comprehend, at you know, given our present times and in the era of specialization that we live in. Now, to be sure, we don't want to engage in some sort of hagiography. And, and Rousseau is not a perfect thinker, and he's not right about everything. And um, as with most really other accomplished philosophers, often contradicts himself. And, and on one level, I guess you could say that there's some fundamental flaw, but I think that tends to be a feature of individuals who have really nuanced and complex thoughts and, and are able to apply some penetrating lens to the social world. They tend to play around with a lot of different ideas and explore a lot of different avenues in their writing. And, and Rousseau is no different. One of the things I really like about Rousseau, again, is regardless of what one thinks of the merits of his ideas or arguments or thought, uh, is that discussions of Rousseau's ideas open up a lot of potential avenues to explore and think creatively about a lot of the social and political phenomenon we are experiencing here and now. So without a doubt, there's a ton more I could say or would like to say, perhaps. But for now, I think it is best just to get on with the conversation. Um, before I introduce Dr. James Bacho a little bit more formally, uh, I just want to always note, thank you so much for listening. For those of you who have subscribed, thank you so much. Uh, if you haven't subscribed or if this is the first time listening, um, thank you for checking out the show. Um, please be sure to check out the essays and other publications on our Substack and uh, think about subscribing. But again, just thanks to everyone for your continued support of The Interesting Times as a Substack and podcast and so forth. Um, it really means a lot. And 2022 has been a great year and really excited to ramp things up in the year to come. So before we jump into it, let me introduce James a little bit more formally to you. 
Uh, he teaches courses in filmmaking, aesthetics, and storytelling. Uh, he is the author of three books, the latest titled Living in an Age of Survival. He has written for journals like Media, Culture, and Society, the Journal of Sonic Studies, the new soundtrack, Film Philosophy, Studies in European Cinema, Cosmos and History, Deleuze and Gujarati Studies, Semiotica, and the Monthly Review of Philosophy and Culture. Uh, he currently lives in Seoul and is currently writing a book on hacker culture and the video gaming industry in Silicon Valley. Uh, so as you can see, James brings just a huge amount of insights into philosophy. And I think one of the reasons I really like having these conversations with Jim is that um, though we are coming from a shared interest of kind of digging into some of the philosophical and intellectual roots of the time we're living in, uh, we certainly bring certain academic and personal kind of experiences and perspectives to the discussion that I think adds for you know just enough friction to kind of really help create something new out of the dialogue um, rather than just us stating our points um, back and forth to each other. And and I think this conversation really bears that out as our initial discussion of Rousseau and, and some of his core ideas really grows into, uh, I think, a fascinating uh, conversation about much more contemporary present day affairs. So thanks so much again for listening and let's get to the conversation. Jim Bacho, thanks so much again for joining us here at The Interesting Times. Thank you, Kevin. Great to be here. You know, anyone who has listened to discussions I've had with you and others on the podcast before, um, Rousseau is a name that I often pull out and and bring into the conversation. And, and so for a long time, I've been thinking it just would be a good idea. And, and I, um, I really enjoy Rousseau's thought. I think he's, he's just a fascinating thinker. And, um, as we were kind of discussing before we started recording, just someone who I think is just so readily speaks to things we are experiencing in, in the very, you know, very present right now. And, and is, is someone whose thought, um, has, uh, that unique ability to kind of, um, be certainly of his time and of his place, but touch into these kinds of transcendent kind of aspects that allow it to have a certain timeless nature. So um, one of the premises of this was a, a book that I read um, called Rousseau's Counter-Enlightenment by Graham Garrard. Um, and I, I just found it to be, um, I, this was a, a kind of project that I started Oh, maybe three or four years ago, um, I just read a few things and I was always familiar with Rousseau as someone who studied politics and, and so forth, but uh, I, I never really you know, dug into his work and, and I reread Discourse on Inequality and I was just like, wow, it just blew me away. I mean, that is something to be said for like going back and, and checking out some of these classics you might have been forced to read in high school or even undergraduate um, times and, and take a look at them now 15 or 20 years later. And that book just floored me um, in a way that I was like, wow, um, there's just so much that is is speaking to now and um, really uncovering, I think, a lot of the you know, someone who's standing at this crossroads of, of intellectual history, of political history, of economic history, and is really putting their finger on exactly what's transpiring or, or some of the kind of core features of what's transpiring. And, and I think in that way, 
uh, it's such an invaluable um, resource. And so that led me down this road of, of really getting into Rousseau and, and kind of keeping it as a side project. I haven't published anything on Rousseau. And um, for anyone out there who may be like a, a Rousseau person, uh, I, I want to offer a disclaimer that I am not um, in academic speak a uh, Rousseau person. Um, well, I think we're both coming to this text, you know, kind of, kind of new. Neither of us are, are, I would say, specialists in Rousseau, but you've dropped his name quite a few times in our conversations. And I think you're a little more versed in him than me. I, I'm coming to Rousseau. I was, I'm also working on this book project about, um, aesthetics theory. And, and I, there's something that you turned me on to in Rousseau that made me think, Oh, is this guy an element of the, Romantic period. He's kind of pre-romantic um, French uh, romanticism, but I thought of him as kind of a counter-enlightenment person, and I think you are the person who is drawing me into this. I went to look into his writings, and I don't know if we can really consider him as as a romantic. In fact, not at all. But he is counter-enlightenment. So um, that that's kind of where I'm coming in, which is very much. Um, a you know a newbie to uh Rousseau's thinking but I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, sure. No, and and I only mention that is cuz you know you're you're in this business as well and uh, and I've experienced it on the fl- on the flip side like you know I I my my case I guess I study political economy but I really am an expert um, particularly on Korean development and Korean history and in society and so mm-hmm. forth and so uh Sometimes I hear some people who maybe aren't as uh, well versed or haven't spent 20, you know, 15 years studying this. And, uh, I get all pissed off. I'm like, you don't even know. You haven't even read these 95 books. You don't have anything, you know, so that's always, so I, I've been on the other end of that. So yeah. I, I'm just, I want to, I want to throw a blanket out here yeah. that the, in, in the, in the, uh, unlikely, but you know, never know event that someone who is like very steeped in Rousseau is listening to this. I'm not claiming I'm someone who studies politics and, and is very interested in political thought and the history of political thought. Um, as it relates to understanding um, the, you know, the past and present, uh, who finds Rousseau just fascinating and, and have really gone on my own little journey the last three or four years reading his work and reading secondary literature like uh, Graham Garrard's excellent book. So um, as you mentioned, Rousseau, and, and this is kind of um, Garrard's argument, which I think is a good place to start, right, is his basic you know, big argument is that Rousseau was not a a critic of the Enlightenment, but an enemy, right? And and I mean, I think, you know, I think it's pretty clear what he means by that. Like Rousseau didn't see like, oh, the Enlightenment is you know some good, some bad, but I you know I just kind of have a critical view of it. Um, he he sees Rousseau as as going through this transformation where he becomes you know wholly antithetical to the Enlightenment and seeing it not only as a flawed project, but actually a detriment, a project that's detrimental to his view of what a, a, a you know a flourishing human future would look like um and 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 so um and i think that for me i i'm someone who is generally critical um at least the kind of self-congratulatory um versions of the enlightenment that we've kind of you know science and observation and empiricism has kind of solved all of these problems or given us this kind of access to some sort of um preferred reality so what should we talk about well, what I was thinking is, is there's um, a few short passages um, from the introduction to the book, and uh, I thought um, they provide like a really good setup to kind of begin our discussion of, of the first topic kind of I thought would be just 
why did you know it's one thing to say Rousseau was an enemy of the Enlightenment or or saw the Enlightenment as this kind of um uh, you know as an anathema as some sort of like really mm-hmm. bad direction that that you know human thought and and potentially human society was taking um and so I think these passages um really sum up uh, some of the key aspects of Gerard's um, argument so let's let's read those and sure. then um I'll throw it over to you and then we can kind of take it from there. All right. right. So, um, well, here in, in a nutshell, here's one sentence, right? I would say that Rousseau um, was an enemy rather than merely a critic of the Enlightenment. And, and by that, and I'm reading again, quoting um, the book, one of the most consistent themes in Rousseau's work is the insistence that virtue requires that the individual listen to what his heart tells him directly, something that excessive reasoning and the acquisition of knowledge, particularly scientific knowledge, only obscures. He also associated modern science with vanity and a destructive and unhealthy urge to dominate. And then one more passage here. At the heart of Rousseau's critique of Enlightenment civilization is his belief that the social naivete and simplicity of the philosophes blinded them to the deep tensions and complexities of collective life and the powerful disintegrative forces that pose a constant threat to social order. Rousseau saw an ineliminable social problem at the heart of enlightenment civilization and charged that it promoted a destructive atomization that undermined the very social conditions that even the philosophes believe were indispensable to human development. There it is. So those, I think, really capture um, how the author presents Rousseau's kind of critique of enlightenment thought and, and its consequences. And just briefly for our listeners, the philosophes, um, for those who don't know, it's, it's just referring to a group, um, pr- mainly in France, of French um, thinkers. Uh, often um, they, they can also be um, referred to or, or they have some overlap with a group called the Encyclopedias. And these were, um, you know, people who were at the central of in center of what was considered, you know, high enlightenment thought. Um, in 17th and 18th century France, Voltaire, who, you know, ultimately became an enemy of Rousseau, um, Diderot, people like that as, as kind of, so that's what he's saying when he refers to the philosophes, just to, to give some context. But, mm-hmm. all right, Jim. So, um, yeah, what, you know, what stands out or anything stand out to you about those, um, criticisms? Well, there's a few things. Um, you know, I, I mean, one of the things I want to get into is this question of atomization and what that means. Um, but then also there's this question of, you know, kind of what you're presenting as a thesis, which is um, not just a critic of the Enlightenment, but a anti-Enlightenment thinker. Um, there's a section in the introduction um, where the author is going to, states that he's, uh, is it, yeah, Gerard, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, I believe so. Where Gerard says that, um, and I'm quoting here, Rousseau favored an enlightenment of the spirit achieved through the cultiv- cultivation of virtue and with the aid of conscience rather than an enlightenment of knowledge and reason, end quote. And mm. that's interesting to me because he, he does seem to be sympathetic to, you know, the time that he's living in and, you know, this kind of thirst for, um, a greater society, which I think was an element of the enlightenment. But mm. I think there's, there's something to this where he's kind of, um, drawing out one aspect of the enlightenment to counter and then another aspect of the enlightenment that's more going to fit into his, you know, his, his 
wider project. Um, so if we think of those things again, an enlightenment of the spirit achieved through the cultiva- cultivation of virtue with the aid of conscience, he's, he's for that. But if we call the enlightenment an enlightenment of knowledge and reason, then he's going to be against this. So I thought that was an interesting distinction. Maybe we can um, tease that out a little bit more. Right. Well, and, and I think, too, just to, to circle back a little and, and to give uh, just a touch more of the context is that, um, you know, some of these people I mentioned, uh, Voltaire, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially Diderot, um, Rousseau was quite friendly with them. Rousseau was, you know, became a celebrated um, after writing uh, this critique of the arts and sciences or the, his first discourse, as it is known, um, became kind of celebrated in the salons of Paris and, and as this new kind of brash thinker um, would befriended a lot of these people. And so there is a very interesting personal story where he, you know, he slowly began to turn much more negative to a lot of their project, um, you mm-hmm. know, and, and a lot of the impulses of that project. And um, ultimately that ended up, um, you know, he ended up most of his friendships and, and relationships with a lot of these people. So this was a kind of personal and intellectual story. And I think I bring that up because I think, it does fit in with what you're saying is that on, on the one hand, there is some of the enlightenment in Rousseau's work in a, in a kind of freshness in, you know, if we, if we throw off some of the baggage of the past, like what new horizons are out there. And I think that in, in the best sense is what the enlightenment brought. And, and I think you, you put your, your finger right on it when he says, you know, when he saw the, what I think Rousseau saw as an arrogance, you know, and, and often arrogance and naivete go together. Right. And I think he Mm. saw this as fundamentally naive, right, that these people were not landing upon some some ultimate solution to um, the human dilemma that they thought they were, that that science and reason and, and empiricism was not going to provide the liberation they believed. And he saw that as naive. Um, and that naivete, as so often it does, led to arrogance. And I think for Rousseau, that is, you know, the, the kind of crux of um, his critique. And, and I think one of the things that from the, the passages I read that really stood out to me is, is, and, I, and this is where, again, I don't know if anyone else listening kind of felt this, but I mean, when you, when you read these kinds of um, passages from Rousseau or this analysis, this excellent analysis by Garrard, pointing to this, this fundamentally destructive nature of, of scientism um, and how it leads to these destructive and, and dark impulses, um, we only need to think of, you know, the history of colonialism all the way up to climate change and the destruction of, of, um, of the earth's, you know, of humans, um, ecological system, mm-hmm. right? And this is, these are the kinds of things. And Rousseau's writing this, be- there wasn't an environmental problem when Rousseau was writing. There wasn't global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was, um, the, the beginnings of, of, you know, this was at the earliest part of, uh, colonialism and the, and the enslavement and slave trade between West Africa and the, and largely the Caribbean and the Americas. But nonetheless, I mean, I think, so early on to really capture that, to see that um, this attempt to systematize and organize our knowledge of the world um, does. And I think Rousseau was not totally you know, against that, but I think he sees that a belief in this as a kind of fundamentally um, unmitigated good or, or source of liberation is dangerous because it negates what he sees as, you know, and as Gerard put it, this destructive um, side of nature, this, this, that it, it can compel us to dominate. And, and, and in some ways it's pretty logical, right? If we, 
the more confident one is in one's knowledge, the more willing they are to be violent. And this is, I guess, where I come in as a, as a student of politics, right? Confidence often in one's, you know, in the correctness, in the certitude, right, of one's position um, is often correlated with a willingness to do you know, obscene violence in its names. And I, and I think colonialism is a, is a perfect example of that. I mean, there, there's just so much in the record about how a certitude of European superiority, particularly Western European superiority, not only justified, but, 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 but actually, you know, um, allowed them to reconfigure colonial domination and, and brutal violence and repression as a service to these societies, right? And so, and and Rousseau wasn't writing about that per se. I mean, he did talk some about, you know, the, obviously famously in the in the discourse on inequality, he did talk um, about Western experiences with um, Native societies um, in the Americas and, and Caribbean. But um, I don't, I don't, I, I think he, again, he was he was touching on this underlying diagnosis that is still so present in in our world, or 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 even well, yeah. If I may, before we yeah, please. go there, I just some you bring to mind some some things that I think is worth highlighting. It, I think well before the what we call the Enlightenment, you have the Age of Reason, right? Which is kind of you know we I, I think we tend to pinpoint that at Descartes and the whole idea of you know the the, the strength and the power of reason, you know the the cogito ergo sum, the uh, mm. I think therefore I am, you know, which is you know. Descartes was basically laying out a um uh, uh the power and the capacity of a person to be rational and and apply one's reason to come to understandings and of course for Descartes you know he what he came to was uh evidence of of the idea of god right mm. and so for him it, it did come to a religious conclusion um but then the enlightenment started to you know, shake off the necessity of an almighty God as, as, as the power. And here we have uh, reason becoming more instrumental. You've got the empirical sciences and things like this. So the enlightenment itself is a reaction mm. against the dogma of the church. And so um, with the enlightenment, all of a sudden we were, we were, we were enlightened. We were free to, you know, start to produce other avenues of of knowledge and understanding and art and thinking and it's still in the shadow of Descartes it's still in the shadow of you know the rational process of you know the higher the higher man <laughs> as it were you know um being an element of this i i just think it's important um to lay that out that this was this was um an elevation of reason that started with the age of reason and continued into the enlightenment. Um, but it started to become, um, I wonder for Rousseau, something that was becoming its own dogma. Right. And so, you know, if we had the church before that told us what knowledge was, that, that told us what ontologically is, told us what, you know, the state of nature is here. We can now kind of, uh, use the sciences to probe into nature and kind of uh, explore. And it was really very much the power of, of human agency and human knowledge to, to approach these big questions of what is life and what is nature and what is the human condition. 
So I just wanted to contextualize that a little bit. Right. And if, if I, if I'm to draw out from Rousseau what's going on, he's, you know, he's kind of onto this early, um, that this, this new faith in reason was perhaps becoming its own dogma. And in a sense, kind of, uh, I guess fracturing things, um, in a way that was stepping away from what he, in terms of what I'm seeing here in this text, is a desire for community right. and a desire for maybe desire is the wrong one, wrong word, but a need for a sense of community, uh, that maybe is, uh, becoming lost as reason replaces the church. Mm, right. So I think no, that's I, an important element to it. No, for sure. And, and I think, you know, you're, you're going back because I think that's an important piece of this kind of, um, where, where Rousseau fits in and, and some of the, um, important kind of intellectual background in this idea of the age of reason. Um, because I think when, by the time Rousseau's becoming involved in this and, and the, these debates, it, it is kind of this moment of transition where we're, um, in some ways, and, and obviously an, an avatar of this period would be someone like David Hume, um, mm-hmm. the Scottish Enlightenment, as it's known, and, and Adam Smith of, of moving from kind of abstract reasoning about the nature of the world and using the kind of power of human thought to, to come to know the world to reaching out and, and, you know, understanding the world as, as a scientific object, right? And, and I think you really hit on something important in that, um, Rousseau, I think, was very concerned about, um, applying this to society, right? That that was in one of the passages, right? That, um, you cannot, you know, society is far more unstable than the kind of systems. And, and I think the book makes an allusion exactly to what you were talking about that he was totally fine. Like you want to study trees or you want to study like animal behavior, or you want to study, you know, that's fine. And, and scientific knowledge in that is, is not only, um, you know, useful, but it's also a worthy pursuit. But when you, when the moment you try to start mapping that onto social structures, um, you're opening up a lot of dangerous, Pandora's boxes that you, that are going to be very difficult to close, and I, and I think he found that to you know that this was being done very haphazardly, and I mean, and again, one thing I want to keep stressing is is how I think relevant it is, and in, in you know if we think about how haphazardly like the ecosystem, um, uh, i.e., social media that now dominates a lot of social discourse all over the world. Like how haphazardly we've kind of just applied that to ourselves. And I'm not blame, and there's not any, I mean, the, and I think this is something Rousseau would appreciate. It wasn't like a conspiracy. Like there wasn't like some dark room where they decided we're going to, but nonetheless, it was a, a kind of haphazardness, right? That, that everyone just kind of dove in. And I think these were the kinds of things that Rousseau saw to be problematic with this scientific approach to society. And, and, and I think there's just, you know, I, I mentioned the discourse on inequality or, or sometimes referred to as the second discourse before, because I think that is an interesting place where Rousseau, f- you know, fits in is that where he saw in his kind of vision of human beings was that they're originally quite solitary and not prone to like form communities. Um, but then, you know, he goes through a series of processes and then, you know, we kind of end up, um, in communities. Uh, and, and for Rousseau though, and this is why, you know, he's not like, a utopian where it's like, okay, we need to get back to this kind of, we're living in these relatively isolated, you know, he's, he's the world's too crowded for that. You know, society has changed too much. So then Rousseau's project became, okay, now we are living in society, right? How do we make a better society? Right. And, and, and how do we avoid 
Um, you know, for Rousseau, it, it, you know, society, and this is, I guess, where he would disagree with, with people like Hume or Smith or, um, even a lot of the French thinkers. He just didn't believe in kind of spontaneous organization. Mm. Right. I mean, think about our lives, like, built yeah, around this market he just didn't believe in that he he thought that was nuts yeah because there was this idea <laughs> that, that that um that things just kind of uh come together naturally if you know in, into into this state of community and he was against that well yeah and and i mean i think that's a premise that undergirds a lot of, of a lot of our political and economic system today mm, right yeah, i mean true. the very notion like, yeah the extent it's that a we, very we, democratic thought yeah Right. Or, or just, I mean, the idea of, um, uh, you know, cause this is, this is a, a strain of thought that, you know, is, is, um, rooted often in, in political economy or even economics that spontaneity can produce order. I mean, that is the market mechanism, right? You have all these people, they're buying and selling, and then it produces an orderly kind right. of set of prices and set of valuations, right? And, and, and so forth. Um, and, I think Rousseau thought that that was far too haphazard and, and that it was going to lead to a lot of social pathologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think that prediction, um, you know, has borne out um, in, 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 you know, quite a few different ways. And, and it's really seeming to be over the last 20 or 30 years, even um, ramping up you know, the, the kind of effects created by this. And, and, and I think that for Rousseau is, is I think an important contribution to kind of our thinking on these things, both past and present is for him, these things have to be rooted in some sort of sense of moral judgment of, you know, virtue. virtue. Yeah. Right. And, and <laughs> there's no way, the word of, at the same yeah, time. <laughs> there's no way around it. There's no, and I think if, and that's kind of where, I think he's been really influential to me to help me develop ideas I had, but like, I think gave them more content, um, you know, in a way so that it wasn't like, I didn't think this before. It was more, it was, you know, I think reading his, some of his work and, and works on him really helped give a, a clarity to it in that if we look at so much of what we're debating now, and if we can, you know, you can focus on a lot of countries around the world, you know, or the United States in, in particular, which is, you know, I, where I'm from. So I follow the news there closer than other places. Um, but or Korea, another country I, I follow the news reasonably regularly is I think everybody is it's a fight for kind of this idea of like some sort of, um, you know, epistemological high ground. Right. And, it, and it's in a way attempting to put it in terms that say that I'm not making a moral judgment. I'm just giving you the, you know, the, the famous, the facts. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just telling you if you want to be rational, I'm just being reasonable. Right. And, and I, I think there's a space to, you know, debate these things, but I think it, it needs to take place with, with, and I think that's where Rousseau is really valuable is that these are moral yeah. questions. You can't, you can't solve them by, um, by, you know, getting a lot of data, you know, data can help you understand your world. Data is important. You need, you need to know things about the world. That's fine, but they're not going to resolve these kinds of questions of like, what, you know, what does it mean to be a fair society? What does it mean to be a just society? I mean, that, and that takes us back to Plato and, and the questions he asks or, or Aristotle. I mean, so these are not new questions, but I think that statement that these are fundamentally moral and ethical issues at heart and they're always going to be, and and they cannot be solved through um, the scientific method alone. Well, so yeah, you're. Uh, uh, there's a lot here. I think this a lot of this leads to um, 
his, you know, this idea of a destructive atomization of, of thought in society. And if you think about the idea of, um, of virtue and, and a reasoned approach to virtue, um, there's never going to be a, a side to the rational process. This is something that, um, I think people misunderstand is that, and I think even the enlightenment thinkers, and this is part of Rousseau's critique is that, you know, without some kind of core, uh, sense of what virtue is, um, you know, reason becomes empty, um, and no one has a hold on it. So if you think of political discussions over the past, you know, 20 years, like you're talking about, um, anybody can say, I'm just being reasonable. I'm being rational. I'm following the process, right? Because reason is not, this is why reason has become, um, kind of commandeered by atheists because it is seen as the antithetical solution to the problem of the dogma of God. But the problem is it doesn't, anybody can apply one's reason. Descartes' reason was to land on the idea that God exists. And so um, it's a very strange kind of thing that's happening in today's discourses. And I think it is dealing with this problem to... The problem today is dealing with what Rousseau is talking about, is this destructive atomization that's happening when there isn't a sense of what virtue is and what community is. No, I, I think that's ex- exactly kind of gets at a lot of the basis of his real deep misgivings um, about this. I mean, I want to be clear. I, I, I always, I'm not a nihilist, right? And I do think there are, you know, things that we know about the world that are make things clearly like better options. So, you know, but that's like, different from reason. Right, right. It is. So I, but I just, you know, I think it's important. I'm not like some like nihilist relativist, like nothing matters. I think things, I mean the opposite. Right. And I think that's, what's interesting is if you, you know, there, I guess there's a kind of fork in the road if you go down this path and like, I come to the more of the Rousseauian, like, no, this stuff is massively important. Right. And, and, um, and, and that's the problem is in some ways this debases this kind of critical aspect, right? That, um, you know, I read, I read this great quote about, um, David Hume, who, uh, who's, you know, work I, I'm, you know, read quite a bit of, and I think he's, he's, he, he's, he's really an amazing thinker, but, um, somebody said, you know, Hume's views of ethics was kind of derived from this very 18th century European view that any reasonable person with enough education would come to like X conclusion. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that, you know, analysis of Hume's ethics is like, you know, I think that's where Rousseau had a lot of misgivings is that these are people that are um, uh, and, and and you can see why Marx was, you know, significantly influenced by Rousseau. Right. Because there's a lot of Marx in, in this. Right. Like alienation. Right. That the more we start to see society as you mentioned, like atomized as, and this is again, a very human view, right? As like separate pieces that can be organized and reorganized that the more we kind of apply this scientific method to society, um, a weird thing to say, because technically I guess I'm a social scientist by, by official title, <laughs> but as we try to do this, um, it, it is going to lead to a lot of, um, 
bad outcomes, I guess to put it crudely, right? It's going to lead to a lot of bad shit, you know? And, um, I, I think that, you know, so there's that kind of alienation part that I think you can see, um, in Marx, but there's also this idea of, you know, the way that bourgeois ethics and morals are, um, through kind of a, a certain social alchemy. And, and I think Weber has a lot to say about this that's useful. Like bureaucracy has this like kind of alchemy that turns bourgeois ethics as ethics into, um, you know, the rationality that should, that would drive any smart person's behavior or any intelligent person's behavior. Does that, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, and I think Marx really picked up on that from Rousseau and, and, and fleshed it out, mm-hmm. um, maybe in, in a, in a much later time and in a little bit more extensively in terms of industrial society. But I think Rousseau is really kind of at the kernel of that, this kind of transmutation. Like they're still doing ethics. But they're doing ethics in a way that that is, you know, they're they're processing it through this kind of enlightenment um, notions to reify their own ethics and value judgments mm-hmm. um, in a way that then presents it as truth, as mm-hmm. you know, capital T truth, as the reasonable way. And and I think he found that to be, again, both, you know, a, a naive, deceptive, and and ultimately arrogant. Yeah. Um... I think one of the things that we can maybe pull from from if we want to go back to the text is there's there's something that I kind of caught my attention on page 7 and it's it's a theme that continues in in this writing is this pardon my french but this uh, distinction between amour de soi and amour mm-hmm. propre oh, um yeah. and I'm sorry about my pronunciation there but let me give you a little quote here from the text. This is on page seven. Quote, in his discourse on inequality, Rousseau argues that human beings are naturally independent creatures with naturally separate interests, out of which a sense of common interest and identity does not emerge spontaneously, which is what you were saying earlier. Continuing the quote, this otherwise benign natural self-regard, amour de soi. Mm. Is that how you say it, soi? I'm more de soi. Yeah, something like that. I took French for years and I still don't know if I'm saying it right. I took German. (laughs) Is transformed into a powerful and aggressive form of selfishness in society, a more propre, which eventually leads to a state of social warfare. Now, the question I have is, is this where we're at and has digital uh, information and digital, uh, for lack of a better word, communities, um, which aren't really communities at all, you know, the, the idea of, um, you know, the reality of anonymity, the reality of resentment, um, in contemporary politics, this, and, you know, this also draws us into ideas of narcissism and, you know, self-branding and a lot of this stuff. Is this all amour de soi, you know, love of the self? Um, and, the problem with Rousseau is that this eventually will become um, an aggressive form of selfishness in society, a more propre. So this goes against the idea of a, of Nietzsche, you know, work on yourself and, you know, kind of these, these higher kind of echelon of people who are going to emerge and be uh, great artists and great leaders. Um, it seems Rousseau is go- going against this idea that this self-regard and this kind of, you know, uh, kind of focus on the self is only going to lead to selfishness with a loss of community. 
And I'm wondering if that's where we're at right now. I, you know, I, well, I, th- I think, you know, the, the, the age of social media, which we're just at the, still in the infant stage of, and, and just think yeah, about 10 like, years or something. Well, I mean, you know, there, there is this like, uh, and I think you're, you know, you're a touch older than me, but, um, I have, you know, I have these interesting moments in, um, you know, some of my classes where I'm like, you know, I come from this time called the 1990s, right? Or like, yeah. The, the internet was supposed to do all, I mean, like, it's really hard and like, it's interesting because, you know, most even, you know, the students now are, are quite cynical about the internet and, and, and are quite more attuned to its pathologies. A lot of them probably experienced like cyberbullying and seeing the kind of narcissistic behavior and, and maybe, you know, felt drawn to it themselves as probably all have. Um, but I, to tell them like, you know, in, 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 you know, 98, 99, like every, almost everything about the internet was seen as positive. Like we're going to have mm-hmm. this public square and people are going to have access to all this information. And yeah, I remember when to- it happened, I was in college when it happened. And my professor said, I was taking a philosophy of technology class and he said, Oh, they just laid the pipe for the internet. And we're like, what, <laughs> what's that? And, um, he said, Oh, it's going to be great. Now, uh, uh, information is going to be democratized and we're all going to be able to get access to all the information. Isn't this going to be great? And in the ni- early 1990s, it was, you know, seen as a kind of a utopian idea of knowledge and information. And that touches on what Rousseau is saying. I think it is, is, you know, the, it's, it's the enlightenment idea brought to the digital, which is, uh, if we just have everything available to people, Right. Um, that things are going to self-organize and they're going to automatically express this virtue, which has not happened. Right. Well, do you, you remember the remember that phrase? This is like no, let's let's nineties out for a minute. You remember the uh, the good old information superhighway? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. such a great phrase. The information you just get an idea of like you like these like big bands of like trucks of information just moving all around. It's almost like a <laughs> a, a, a bringing of the eighties cocaine days into right. technology. <laughs> right. Just not only it's not only information, it's coming at you, man, and right. right. But I, I mean, I, I really have, you know, I guess now I just turned 45. I mean, you do, you do start to historicize, you know, I start to historic, you start to historicize oneself. And I, I went to college 96 to 2000 and, and, mm. you know, my high school and college years were the Clinton years, um, for better or for not. And, um, I also try to tell them about this, like optimism with, you know, in the nineties again, you know, at least in the, in the official culture. I mean, that, that did have, you know, a, a Nirvana and, and the grunge scene in the United States would really kind of, you know, um, push back against that. But at least in terms of official and, and public culture, and there was much more of a public culture in the nineties, you know, people just watched NBC and CBS and, and so forth. Um, there was this optimism, you know, the stock market was booming and Cold War was over and, and we've, and we've figured it out. And in some ways, I think, you know, Rousseau, um, wherever he is, if he's anywhere, um, is just like, God damn it. I told you motherfuckers <laughs> because, you know, there was this real smug satisfaction and, and, and to give him credit, you know, Fukuyama just put Francis Fukuyama, political theorist who wrote a famous article called, um, the end of history who articulated this, like we've, we've done it. Liberal democracy with capitalism. That's it. There's nothing else. We, we cannot improve upon it. That, I mean, Fukuyama just published a piece in the Atlantic defending that. So, I mean, to his credit, you know, but, uh, like there was this like moment, but like you said, it, it it's been, it, it's, I think that is, you know, I, I don't want to say Rousseau's revenge because I don't think it was anything he was after, but it's kind of like it's devolved, um, slowly but surely, yes, into this like cesspool of, 
um, amor propra, which, which, mm. yeah, was like his key, you know, notion that this, that this, cause, it, and I think for Rousseau, it's again, it's these, the fundamental impulses of, of, you know, um, I don't think he was using the term, but what we would call now bourgeois society were, were quite yeah. toxic to, um, human flourishing because, and I think this is where Rousseau is not like some, um, he's an interesting mix of radical and conservative, right. In, 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 in a fascinating way, but, um, the, the more, you know, the, the part that would be more in line with kind of his radical thinking is, is that, um, I mean, Rousseau didn't believe, you know, he thought he didn't believe in, in some, that like everyone's equal and everyone's the same. I mean, in, in some ways he does share that with Nietzsche, but, but for him, the big problem with bourgeois society is that what we choose to decide who is, has, you know, value and, and who is, uh, elevated and not is not about their virtue, their, um, ability to contribute to society, their contributions as a citizen. It's about having money. It's about mm-hmm. these very self-regarding things. And, and if we lionize those values, you know, we are setting ourselves up for misery, um, in, in a way. Mm, there's also just the, I mean, these things happen in cycles. I mean, right when we think we've figured it out, you know, it is like the time when we think we figured it out is like right before World War II, like, and then Hitler came. And that's, that's why things had to go, um, postmodern because all of the, all of the great ideas of modernity, you know, mm. were being upset. I mean, oh my God, how could Hitler happen? And, and, and so that's where postmodernity came in. So, you know, these cycles of history kind of, kind of repeat, you know, we never have everything figured out. Right. And, and I think it it bears mentioning that, um, you know, at its core, Rousseau was, was quite skeptical, uh, and, and quite dim ultimately about our ability to, to, to transcend this. Um, at least in any sort of near term, right? Um, yeah, I think I'm getting it, that impression from him too. Yeah, right. I mean, the the, the social contract. I mean, it, it it specifies like what he thinks. A kind of you know, it's it's kind of his, you know, trying to sketch out what an ideal republic, right? He was, you know, that is one thing he was known as as a republican, right? As someone who believed in, in a self governing republic. Um, mm-hmm. and and I mean, one thing that I've really kind of thought about, and I'm actually working on an essay now, um, stay tuned to the interesting times. It should be out in a few, I've been working on it for months. Do we have a um, title? Just, I love titles. Um, well, I think, uh, it, it, the sub, I can give you the subtitle. I'm still working on the main title, but it's a question. Can we survive in a world of states? Um, TLDR? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, and the state and, 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 and I mean, it's, it's, it's this interesting, like, um, my critique is, is, is draws us some from Rousseau is that they're just too big. Yeah. Um, you know, for Rousseau, if, if you want to have a meaningful community, I mean, I think he's thinking of, you know, Geneva was his model and, and he has a weird relationship. It's his home, but, um, was banned and had his books burned there later went back and kind of became a, a um, uh, you know, made up and, and, and so forth and tried to, you know, but n- nonetheless, Geneva as, as a model was, you know, we're talking like 50, 60,000 people, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> uh, my colleague here who does, um, political theory had this great uh, mention from Plato that Plato thought that no, um, republic should be above. And I can't remember the number, but what was the cool, yeah, I forget that, all the rules. It, well, it, but, but the cool thing was, is that Plato got the number is that is the amount of people that you could address yeah. at that time in an amphitheater. Mm-hmm. And if you start thinking about societies of 30 million, 40 million, a hundred million, a billion, I mean, it's insane. 
Um, and, and so the, the essay is kind of, and, 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 and in some ways, I think that's, that would be one of the many ways where Rousseau, you know, what was, what realized he was probably fighting a losing battle. Um, you know, that just the fact that he really believed a society probably over a hundred thousand was really hard to be like a, a good society. Well, okay. So, so, and now think post internet, like he couldn't have conceived of the internet, right? Mm. Now post internet, the, the idea of the state is no longer localized, right? And so now almost what you have emerging in global politics is, I think, an, um, you know, kind of a nightmare version of Hegel's dialectic where it's just two things and they're, and they're just fighting with each other and not changing each other, not evolving, not moving on to, you know, Hegel's great idea of a reasoned state. So my point being that in, I think in a digital architecture, which is global, you know, this whole idea of the global village, right? This mm. whole idea of a global society. Well, if everything, if the state is now global, then you've got these two kind of opposing forces that are vying for each other. And it's almost like political culture has be, has become a choice of A or B. And the whole planet is fighting it out in these little micro arg arguments that are happening online. Either you are, and by the way, I hate binaries. I hate seeing in the, the, the world in binaries. But what media and technology has produced is binary discourses. So what's emerging is this, either you are a, a, one who appeals to nature and sensation and tradition and the power of, you know, um, you know, kind of traditional ideas or, or you're someone who, you know, believes in information and knowledge production and technology and, you know, kind of a universal, I mean, both sides seem to, as much as there is of both sides, seem to share one thing in common, which is my ethics are universal and they are correct. And, and so, you know, you've, but, but you do have a split in the way that people are kind of organizing themselves into. So to go back to your idea of the state, couldn't, couldn't we say that there are now two states? Mm. Uh, you know, get rid of the idea of nations in, in terms of political discourse, that maybe there's two states or two states have been manufactured and people are conforming their minds to this idea of two states. And they are forced to choose either one or the other. But I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, outside mm. of this binary, there are people who are refusing to pick one side or another. And I count myself as one of them. And I think that there are a lot of people who are this way. But in the media landscape, you either have to be on this side or you have to be on this side. And that's the only permissible thing. I saw something to, uh, yesterday in the news, mm. something about how uh, people are now keeping a record of who does not vote. And it used to, this used to be sort of something the Republicans would do, but now Democrats are sort of, and again, I'm sorry if this is <laughs> alternative facts or bad information. I apologize. Um, but there was something about how there's, you know, there's going to be this enormous pressure on people who don't vote from the liberal side of things. Mm. Um, and is it now going to become a thing where you can't be an outsider? You can't refuse to vote you can't 
you have to, my point being that everything is being pulled into uh, kind of a two state solution. Sorry for that reference, but um, you know, you're, and here's my, my kind of Nietzschean Deleuzean mm. kind of perspective, maybe call it postmodern if you want, but the idea of a, of a plurality of ideas is being lost. The idea of artistry is being lost. The idea of creativity and thought is being lost because everything is forcibly being drawn by media technology into these two camps. And, mm. um, you know, so as far as the state, if you're talking about the state, it's kind of an interesting idea. I think in the future, you know, this idea of state is going to be ideological. It's going to be discursive. Well, yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there. And I, I think that, you know, um, I guess I, I would sign on, um, in some ways, by the way, I, I thought of a new term and, and I know, I know I'm circling back quite Ooh, a way. Neologism. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, when you said, uh, like a, a, a bad version of the dialectic, I thought about what if, what if we called it the maniolectic, like maniacal and dialectic? <laughs> But it couldn't be mono. It, it would have to be man, maniacal, not mono. Yeah, maniacal. <laughs> um, anyways, um, no, I, I guess I have a little bit of a different. I mean, yeah, you do. Ways, and, and this is where well, we no, I mean, I would say in some ways, I, I do think there are. Um, on the one level, I, I, I think there is a, a certain bifurcation um, going on in, in societies around the world, and maybe the axes upon which those battles are taking place vary. I mean, there seems to be some commonality. I mean, certainly one theme that if you look like that connects um, a lot of what would be broadly probably you could call new right movements um, would, would be immigration and, and, you know, kind of, and that's, that's, that's not, that's both new and old. So that, that tends to be, but I think there's a whole lot of other ways this maps on, but I, I guess rather than you say, you know, you said there are two states. I mean, I think, it's in some ways it's a lot worse than that. Um, that might be okay. <laughs> um, in, in some ways, the, the 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 essay I'm writing is is you know saying like maybe that's um, where things are moving is that we've created these mega societies like 350 million people. And I mean, I, I guess this is like one of the, the you know if you if you study politics and you spend a lot of time thinking about politics, it's like I we talk about representation and then and then I start thinking about you're like president or you're a member of the Senate and you you're you're from California like what it, what does it mean to represent 50 million people? I don't even understand that. Mm. Like you know like what is that even? I mean, I get it. Okay, people vote for you and then you represent California. But what does that really mean? I mean, it, it it almost to be quite frank, it just sounds a bit ridiculous. Mm. You know. <laughs> Like the whole concept of representing uh, 50 million people or even 10 million people or whatever, it just sounds, it just doesn't make any sense. And I, and I think, well, and so that, that that's, you know, p putting that aside, I, what I think we have and, and um, there, there's a really, you know, I think an interesting book, I don't sign on fully to all of his arguments, a book called Why Liberalism Failed. I think the guy's name is um, Deneen, Patrick Deneen. He's a theorist at Notre Dame and, uh, um, but I, I, I mean, in terms of some of a lot of his diagnoses, I think he's, he's right on is that what, what liberalism, again, as political theory, like John Locke, Adam Smith, what have you, um, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, you know, and, and so forth, it, it, is that, it, you know, liberal society, we live in a liberal society, right? In, in that sense, in that classical, like, like sense of liberalism as, as a political theory, as this kind of universalist theory that I think Rousseau was highly critical of is that it it produces an, a dynamic where and he had this great line where he says you know it produces individualism you know the state needs individuals and then individuals need the state right and 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 what what happens is then the state becomes this this kind of 
ship that, you know, I think about two bands of pirates fighting to seize it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, it's not that there's two states. There still is one state and that state is real. I mean, I guess that's, you know, that's the, the political quote unquote scientist in me. Right. That's a real thing that has a lot of power that puts people in jail, sends people to wars, blows shit up. Like mm-hmm. that's a real thing, you know, um, and and commanding the state does give someone a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And what we what our societies are are increasingly devolving into are pitched battles to seize and command and control. And, and, and in some ways, it's almost I think this is almost inevitable. I mean, the state system is still very new, is that it's going to devolve in this because you just and, and this is what has taken place in a lot of post-colonial societies. And, and I think there was certain, you know, material conditions and, and historical conditions that maybe delayed this in places like the United States or France or what have you. But in some ways, our societies are starting to come to reflect a lot of the issues that we saw in the, in the very, um, new post-colonial societies that emerged through, you know, wars of liberation and struggle and so forth in, in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia is this recognition because what would happen is the, you know, it happened in Korea. Um, the colonial society, the colonial entity would create this massive capacity. And then you would have factions that realize that whoever seizes control of this capacity is going to have a lot of power. And what we had in the United States and what you had in a lot of Western societies is a, a you know, what is democracy in, in these big mega countries is an agreement amongst elites to share power by certain rules. Mm-hmm. And what we, when that breaks down, it really just devolves into what we're seeing now and in a pitched battle to seize, you know, the pi- two groups of pirates fighting to seize the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why the state as a, you know, the system is, is really, really dangerous because now we have these capacities like nuclear states and, and these massive armed forces and yeah, you get the wrong people in control of them. We know we've seen this. So what you're talking about and, and it kind of, exp- I think we're talking about two different things, which is interesting. They're both interesting. So you're, you are, and it kind of you know, draws out some of the differences between you and me and what we deal with, which is, you know, I'm primarily, um, you know, doing the work of, of philosophy and continental philosophy, philosophy of aesthetics, epistemology, how people believe. And, you know, a, a big aspect of my education in philosophy is, is, um, is discourse mm. and how we think and how we, uh, believe and, you know, the discursive level of power, which, you know, Nietzsche addressed, you know, so strongly in the idea that our conceptions of truth come from language and who owns the language is the entity that is in power. Um, but then I'm kind of addressing things at the idea of discourse and how we all talk to each other and how we deal with things through the media technologies that we have. And then what you're talking about, just as influential, is the idea of power at kind of this high, um, you know, kind of, I guess you would call it uh, hard power, which is mm-hmm. the power of states and, um, you know, these elements uh, that kind of move history. Um, you know, so it's kind of, um, in, in, in what you and I are talking about, they're not oppositional things. To me, you know, and this comes to, you know, again, to my, I guess, my continental thinking, but that there's a multiplicity going on, that there's two, we're talking about two elements of power that are 
occurring in time, occurring historically, that have their own historical precedents um, that are kind of continuing on and marching on and kind of uh, permeating each other and influencing each other. So it's just kind of interesting. No, no, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I, I would, I, to me, and this is kind of how I, you know, my kind of, um, approach to the world. Um, and if you want to put it in fancy terms, kind of my social ontology, right? Is that these things are, are always in conversation, right? That, that when I say there's a struggle to control the state, I mean that you can see that in the language, the direness, right? Of, of, of the language. Absolutely. And, and, and and I want to be absolutely clear. I'm not when I say they're like two bands of pirates. I, I could see that that could be um, construed as as you know the uh, equivocation or or so forth. I mean, I I personally, yeah, I I I, I am uh, I find um, you know the forces of what we would call the right uh, far more dangerous, um, you know, and far more um, potentially dangerous. But I. I, I think so. I, 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 for me, like two things can be true. Like, I think, you know, yeah, the election next week matters. And, and you're, I, I want the Demo- postmodernist, Kevin. I want the no, Democrats to, win. I want the Democrats to win, like straight yeah. up. Like, I, that's my deal. But at the same time, I think we can, it can also be true that there's a bigger issue. And that's why I, I think Deneen's kind of view of like this, this whole system of creating this massive capacity. Cause that, I mean, just take a step back and think about the notion of like, so there's like seven or eight, people and i think they're all men who like single-handedly have in their in their capacity um by and large the ability to destroy a good part of the planet with nuclear weapons like that's fucking mm-hmm. nuts right right it's a, i mean so when you think start thinking in capacity so i wanted to to circle back though this well is, let me I think, can i can i just address that idea first um that fact renders me completely ineffective so i i don't have any power to affect that whatsoever. I think it's, I think it's something worth talking about. But I, when we come to this discursive level, um, mm. there's nothing that we can fucking do about that because the system does not work. And so in a sense, voting to keep that system in power maintains that power. I don't want to get into that. I don't think we need to get into voting. But what I was talking about in terms of two states, I was talking about kind of, you know, it's an interesting, uh, you know, kind of play on the word state is, you know, you're talking about states at this, at this hard power level. I'm talking about states, almost like states of mind. Sure. Um, I think that come to, connected. come to be yes. psyches and conscious, you know, a, a consciousness and a way of thinking. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to lay that out there. And that's kind no. of what I'm, what I'm aiming towards in, in doing this uh, initiative that I'm doing called creative philosophy is what is possible for me. Right. Well, I think, I think though, I, I would, I would, caution against saying that things that I, I can't control are not worth thinking about. I, I don't think that they're not worth thinking about. I think right, they're out think, of my capacity to do anything about. Well, I would say yes and no. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you, you, you can't phone up the president tomorrow and be like, let's, let's denuclearize. But I, I think, you know, and I had a, a great talk with you know, someone you put me in touch with, um, Ira Allen. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think it, it, there, it is also incumbent to start trying to think, well, what, what comes next? And, and I think, you know, and I think you're, 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 you have a lot to add to that conversation. And so I don't, I don't think that it, it, it needs to be so immediate to, to start saying, well, like, and I think I use that not as like a, it's nuts, like, oh my God, like, what can we do about it? It's more like as a heuristic to just think about the pathologies of the kind of way we've decided to structure ourselves, which I think it's not like that filters down 
all the way to people's lives in in a day to day way. I see. So I'm not I'm not drawing like a high politics low. Po- I, I think it's a it's a constant up and down stream, right? And so that fact is is not dis disambig. You know, it can't be disambiguated from our experiences as kind of run of the mill people living our lives. I think they're they're very much in in communication with each other. Absolutely right? has to do so, with our lives. It's just a matter of what what is it that we can give ourselves to. I mean, we're talking that the, what we're skirting around and dancing around is is what the fuck can I do? Right. Well, so I, we I, have I, these big problems, what can be done about it? Well, and I, I guess on, on one level, and, and, and I said, I just gave that as a kind of, as a, as a heuristic to, to think about the kind of the, the state we're in, um, no pun yeah. intended. Uh, but I, I think there is empowerment in trying to ground yourself and, and try to situate yourself. And I think part of that is, is understanding the, the nature of the society you find yourself, you know, and I mean, that is an existential, like we're thrown into a world, right? No, um, absolutely. And, and so, I agree 100 and, 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 and mapping that world involves both understanding at, at a, at, at a very day to day level and, and, and things yeah, you do, this, but it's also understanding macro structures. I think. Yeah. This I is why I was that. not, this is why I was not trying to discontinue, you know, to, right. to, to, you know, kind of. You know, dissolve what you were saying. I was trying to propose that there is another way of thinking about right. this, which is no. at the discursive level. Well, so getting to the discursive level, because I think this is another conundrum we're in, and this is and this is where I think there is some, you know, there is some cash. This cashes out in in a in you know, I don't want to say useful, but maybe more immediate sense is is I think there is this tendency to. Um, and you see it in media coverage, you see it in, in claims left and right, center, whatever is this idea of who, you know, of the common person and, and what the common person wants and what the average, and, and, and I think what the, what the, what the trap is, is if we think about it, we're, you know, in a mass society of 300 million people, Mm. by nature, anybody who, who has a platform, whether they've got it through being a journalist or being a politician or being a, now a social media star, right? They're, even if they come from humble origins, right? Cause that's another really interesting phenomenon of like a particularly United States, how it's like, everyone's got to talk about their, like, you know, it's like if you, if you have humble origins that somehow elevates you, right? But even if you come from really, you know, humble origins, I, I think it's admirable people who kind of find their way and, 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 and take paths and, and become people who have influence, people who are listened to, you know, I think there, there is something to be said for that. Um, but nonetheless, the very fact of attaining that position separates you, gives you a, a kind of, a, so like, all we end up with is elites. Like anybody who we're discussing in, in you know, in, in, in talking about writing in the Atlantic or if it's someone who's a social media star, or if it's a politician, right? They're an elite. And, and, and so there's a kind of distance, like an epistemological distance, right? That is, I think, difficult to square because when, when you're talking about these two states, I mean, I think the people who are really bound up with that, and I, I would include myself in that, for sure, um, uh, um, are are not probably representative in any sort of meaningful way of if you know. So I mean, I, I you know, I don't know if I'm really putting my finger, but I think we have this notion that there is like, you know, there is a a, a kind of mass opinion or 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 you know you see this like the new york times let's go to like a bar in ohio and let's figure out what the what, what these people think and let's go to the coal mine you know workers and at the you know there is this kind of anthropological gaze 
Um, but I, and I think it, it's in some ways it, it might come from a good place that people realize that like, Hey, I'm, even if I came up rough, I'm like an elite now and I don't really know. I'm kind of disconnected from that world. I have a nice house and a nice car and, you know, I got money in the bank. So it's like we have a society where all the people who have that kind of influence on the discourse, left, right, Marxist, you know, and Randian, what have you, are by themselves, are by their very nature. Dis- and that's not a critique of them. That's not calling them sellouts. Are by their nature what? Are by their nature have a, li- you know, live a fundamentally different kind of social existence than yeah. the people they're claiming to, you know. And so how, I don't know how, you know, that to me is, is um, you know, and you hear now that it's election time, it's like everyone's talking about what does the common voter think? What is it, you know? And, and I think that is interesting. And I'm not, I don't know either. And I'm not even an elite. I'm not, no one listens to me, you know, but I think that's, that's this interesting kind of question. And, and, and I mean, for, and, and in some ways it's a question that is raised by um, modern notions of democracy and equality, which I generally support, but it, it, you know, for Plato, it's a lot easier. Like, ah, oh, most people should be drones. I mean, and in some ways Rousseau, which I don't know if I really sign on with fully intimates that as well. Like, hey, people should just be drones and we need some really smart people and we're going to have them like manage everything and then everyone will be happier because a lot of people just aren't smart enough to manage or to really think about their lives in that abstract way and they would be happier not to have to. And that if you have that view, things become a lot easier. But if we're trying to say this idea that there is this public and society should reflect the values of the public, I'm just like, man. I don't, and if you had a, a, a public of 50 or 60,000 people, that's probably possible. But 350 million people? I don't know, man. I mean, I just think we're, I think you have two camps of elites fighting it out, which is fine. That's, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Right. But, but who has access? Who has epistemological access? It's, it's to, sort of, it's sort of like a, you know, it's a big football game. It's like you choose this team or you choose this team to win the game. And they are, you know, these billionaire, you know, teams, and you're basically rooting for laundry. I think that's a Jerry Seinfeld joke. Um, but, you know, they, they're just, they're so out of the reach of, of what is actually going on in your life. You're just rooting for it, for a team. That, that doesn't mean that things don't matter because they do have an effect. And we've, right. we've seen what's happened with the Supreme Court now. So it does have an effect on things. But, you know, the idea of the common man, I mean, that's, that's, um, that's ideological. Both sides have used that. Bill Clinton used that. The Republicans have been using that for everybody uses it. You have, I mean, you have yeah, to. Right. I'm, I'm not yeah. even. I'm not even criticizing these people. If I ran for, if I ran for office, I, you, I mean, of course you have to. Mm-hmm. But it's a game. Yeah. The, but... the real elements of power. So this is the distinction. The real elements of power are the things that you've described a few minutes ago. Um, but the at the discursive level, it's all fucking bullshit and everybody knows that it so so the common man is is kind of a bullshit story that the media presents right. you know because it's a narrative it's in a story well right? i mean it's something the, that can be told i mean uh, it isn't it isn't because i mean we we you know uh, in going back that that you know we do know that the vast majority of people probably don't have a lot of resources don't have a lot of social power um 
So we do know there are like people that, you know, and I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm marginal. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying it's, but I'm just saying like, there are a group of people that don't have, that don't write pieces for the Atlantic or don't have like Twitter feeds that have 9 million followers, right? There are like that, you know, like that is real. Um, and, and, and I guess kind of what I'm getting at is that if you're going to try to have a society of, of 20 million, 50 million or 30, 350 million people, it, there's no other way. So, I mean, I, you know, and there's that, no and other I, way than what? Like then like having elite discourse basically define the terms of things, because how can you have a conversation? Like you hear these things, like, let's have a conversation about X. It's like, what do you mean with 350 million people? I don't even know what that means. Well, this is, I mean, I'm so not, I, mean I'm, I feel like I'm like Tom Hanks in like the, the movie uh, Big. I'm like, I just don't get it. We, well, and in some ways, in, <laughs> I don't get it. Well, so this is, I mean, Rousseau is getting at this, right? And I, right. I, I didn't read enough to know what his answer is, but he does depend on the state. He's going to depend on the experts and, um, you know, kind of a, a very, you know, high level elite, uh, response for how to deal with this. Mm. And then, you know, this was also a debate in the 1920s between uh, Walter Lippmann and John Dewey. You know, sure. John Dewey was on the side of the public that the public, you know, can organize and figure shit out. And then Lippmann said, no, we need experts. We need so- some sort of uh, funneling system because the people can't think for themselves. This is a long standing uh, sure. issue. Well, I think, but, but and, what we have now, what we have now, I think is the, you know, the, the corporate media trying to manage this and taking on the status of elite, um, mm-hmm. in order to manage the messages for people. And it works because people still consume these forms of media. But then you've got, see, for me, I mean, I talk about two states. I talk about, I, I just mean that that's what the attempt is for media to do because media has always worked this way. Look into Douglas Kellner's television, the crisis of democracy. There's basically what media does. It's not left or right, at least, mm. um, not, you know, normally it's, it's basically consensus. What, what media is trying to do is create, um, a middle of the road situation so that people can watch with enough terror to continue to watch so that they can sell advertising, but it's mm. to filter out the extreme voices. So it's going to narrow things down to a versus B that's what I mean by two states. There's going to be right. two ideas. But me as a, for me, the question of what the hell are we going to do about this is to embrace the plural and the multiple and that we need a, a multiplicity of ideas to come forth because there is no common man. Uh, I think John Dewey said this. There, once you've defined who the public is, you've gotten it wrong. Any t- any time it's like narrowing in on the particle that disappears when you study it. Mm. Anytime you say what the public is, you've automatically you're automatically wrong because there's no such thing. And and I agree with that. And 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 I think I, I am not espousing like the the you know the we we need you know kind of the the platonic or or well, we're know, discussing maybe, Rousseau, right? I mean, or or, or, or yeah. What and, and Rousseau? I mean, the key variable for Rousseau was citizen, right? I mean, Rousseau imagined that like in in a classical sense, like a, a, a you know that a citizen that was as as dedicated that a citizen for Rousseau, a kind of freedom for Rousseau was the 
being in a society where one was willing to subvert their own amor propra, mm-hmm. to go back to that term, for for the benefit of the republic. Right. And 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 not in a kind of controlling way, but in it, you know, for Rousseau, that's what virtue was. Right. And so for him. Can I point out something just as an aside here? Uh, just sure. a little bit here. So Rousseau, I'm, I'm just looking at the article here. Um, the idea of the citizen as to identify with the common interests, to mm. have a patriotic identity. Um, we need the intervention of a quasi divine legislator, the integration of religion, society, morality, and the state. So that's just right. something I'm pulling from Gerard's. No, no, for so sure. So continue, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I, I certainly sign on to Dewey's view and, and one of my favorite quotations that I like to use in class a lot because I, I think it's not just some pithy line where, you know, Gramsci's quotation that everyone's a philosopher, right? That life is complex for everybody. And we all have to make philosophical judgments to kind of make our world knowable, to make it workable, right? That it, it, it's vastly complex. And to just go about life in any context is requires a philosophical perspective, right? And so, um, you know, I think people leave very rich inner lives that are debased by mass society. And, and so my retort to Dewey would be, yeah, but how do you, how, you know, what, what happens is, and, and the answer to this, um, and that's where I, I, I shuddered a bit. Sorry, James. Uh, I shuddered a bit when I heard you talk about, cause I, I think pluralism is again, I, I, I would be, that's a very, you know, long running kind of liberal political theory. And, and, but I think it's, it, it has some of that Rousseauian, not you, the, the, and I don't even know if you're espousing, like you said plural, but like pluralism is a, a stock liberal theory that like you just have a lot of different views and you kind of try to aggregate them. I think that. No, I don't mean it in that way. Right. I don't right. mean it in the political way. <clears throat> right. But, but, but ultimately this has to cash out to some, like in terms of societies are going to have central authorities. And if you're going to try to have a society of hundreds of millions of people or even tens of millions of people, I don't know how you do that without, and this gets back to circling all the way back to what we talked in the beginning with atomization, like it, it, it's almost incumbent, right? And so I think, I mean, and that's where I, I, I think we have to really grasp like i i think we've just made a series we like the human race and and perhaps you know most people are some people are obviously much more responsible we've made a series of bad bets right and 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 we keep going and by the way i'm not going to use double down because it's just such a misuse double down you have a small advantage in blackjack and and you push a small advantage you have The, the, the proper term would be going double or nothing that's the junkie move, double or nothing. We keep going double or nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, so we keep going double or nothing on a bad bet, right? And we keep making the same bad bet and going double or nothing, double or nothing, double or nothing, right? And and um, I don't know how we unwind all of this, and 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 that's where. Well, yeah, let me I mean, respond the, to your let me respond to your idea about um, pluralism and atomization because I think that's a very important thing that we'd have to tease out. So I'm not I'm not proposing a society or a government of pluralism. Mm. Um, I'm not, I'm not proposing anything. I'm, I'm saying that within the structures of power, if you only think of it as power against power, if you only think of it as two things, this is why I'm not a Hegelian. I know there's a, there's, it's not just, it's not just opposition in Hegel, but, um, you know, if, if the idea is force against force, then, then 
what are we as citizens to do? Well, when I told you earlier that I, I can't do anything about that, what I meant is I can never be a, con- a real contributor. I mean, mathematically, I can never be a real contributor in force against force of state against state or dominant ideology against dominant ideology. This is why I'm delusion, which means I believe in the capacity of something to happen that is outside of that struggle. So um, so we have to connect that to the idea of atomization. Okay, so the atomization that he's worried about is, is as far as I'm reading it, is kind of the falling apart of, of morals and the kind of falling apart into a singular kind of uh, self-interest. And I agree with him that that is a problem. So when I'm talking about pluralism, I'm not advocating atom- atomization. I'm saying this, this is why, to me, the idea of the creative idea, the creative line of flight, the flight mm-hmm. out of what is the struggle that is the dominant power struggle between two that only seem to kind of create an, a, an ongoing state of opposition of one against the other that keeps the one power in power, right? So to me, what I mean by pluralism or mul- or multiple, multiple things happening at the same time is there's always something happening at the same time. I think this is hard for a lot of political theory to get at, which seeks kind of to understand what is the model on which to base a, a political society. I, I, um, that's not really in my purview. I don't really have any specialty in, in, in that. But mm. what I'm saying is that there are, um, the possibilities of defining something differently or defining something as other than fitting into this uh, opposition of A versus B that only upholds that one power. So that's kind of what I was getting at with that. No, and, and, and yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to paint you. I don't want to besmirch you with the pluralist label. No, that's a, that's a, I, I was, that was more a little bit more tongue in cheek. I, I, I knew you weren't. I, I know but it's you're interesting not like, because it I know you're not sitting at home reading Robert. Yeah, you're Oop. not reading Robert Dahl, the Godfather of American pluralism. Um, I don't, I don't know <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's a nerdy political science stuff. Um, that yeah, you don't, I don't no do political you, science. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to. I do politics. Um, right, right. So do I. That's what I would say. I don't do political science either. But um, yeah, that he's a, he's a big thinker in democratic theory, and, and mm. we don't need to bring, we don't need to trot him out. Yeah, I don't know um, how so I feel about me, that. I don't know how I feel about democracy. I don't know how well, I feel about the public. I really well. Don't. What what I think what I'm saying is that I, I I think I'm I'm finding that we're you know I I think there's we're we're on a lot of similar ground. Um, and what, you know, you mentioned something like, how do we get outside of this? And I guess that's kind of what I'm saying. But yeah. I, I think that's always my, interest. what, what I think though, is that I'm not an, I'm not like a, um, an anarchist. And I Neither think, I. and, and so I, I, I guess to the extent of anarchism is about minimizing like the size of society. I'm, I, I have anarchist tendencies in that way. Right. Um, but, but, but I do, I guess there's, there's varying, there's varying degrees of anarchism to be clear, but there, like, there, there were some, you yes. know, radical strains that believe that basically that we don't need any central authority at all. And I, and that's kind of in the sense I was using it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that those realms are always in conversation, right? Like that, that they're like, because, and, and this is where I think, um, for all of his flaws, this was something I think Aristotle was absolutely right about that, that, that politics is about how do we, how do we try to create a, a social community where our life, where we live a good life, where we feel satisfied. Um, and in that way, for Aristotle, everything was political, 
not like political and like fighting, like, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, but political in the sense that it, it in its essence was that politics, everything flow should be built around how, how do we construct a society that is geared towards human fulfillment and flourishing? Eudaimonia, and, eudaimonia. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that is to me, in, in, in Aristotle, that's why politics came before everything. Because if you, if, you know, if you don't have a society that promotes that, and I think where this is also, you can see Rousseau in this. If you don't have a society that promotes that, like, and, and that would be, you know, and that you can't, you know, it, it, we, we've tried to just like, okay, I'm just going to make my own little community and go off. And I mean, that, that, that has mm-hmm. like left and right variants, right? You have, yeah. which is interesting, right? You have like the survivalists and you have like the hippie commun- communalist, right? And those have never really been satisfactory because it, 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 it's, it's, you know, these forces of broader society are still in place. Like you can't, you know, you can't just like, um, uh, there's, there's no, like, there's no kind of like, uh, exit option, right? We're, we're all in this game. Um, and there, you know, we have to find a way to get outside of it, but also in a way, try to think about new ways to organize or to organize, you know, communities, um, that are geared towards that, that, that do, but that will have rules that will have, you know, decision-making organs. Like I don't, so I don't think of like polit, like you use this word, like hard and soft. Like I, I don't, I don't, um, subscribe to that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't say soft, but I, or, I did. Say right. Well, I guess it implies a, you know, or, but, um, uh, but no, like, I don't think there's a soft power, but I, anyway, I mean, we can let that go. Yeah. I mean, I think what, what you, what you would describe as hard, whatever not hard politics is like, if there is a well, hard, so there's the, a the not, not hard, hard, the the not hard would be what I can do. Right. Right. Because and, I don't I, have hard power. But I think those two are always in. I don't even have soft power. Right. <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think those two are in, in far greater interaction, um, than we realize that in, in, in that, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not, uh, as distinctive realms as, as one would think. And what um, two things? Well, like, you know, uh, the world of, you know, rules and governance, right? And, and, and that very often we can see numerous instances of uh, throughout history with people that lacked a lot of more of the official, um, trappings that would make one to believe that they had agency or, or genuine mm-hmm. agency be able to effectuate significant change in power structures, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's just, that's a historical fact. And, and those are people that I think lived in both worlds. Right. I mean, I don't think, I don't think this was like, okay, we're just going to attack like this policy in the state. I think it was people who created community in, in the kind of way you're talking about, but then also lived in a world where that community led to a need to seek confrontation with authorities. You know what I mean? So it's not, I don't I, I, like, I, you know, and, 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 and I don't think those things are. I think they're distinctive and they have their own elements, but I think they're, 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 they're far more in conver- conversation and interaction with one another than, you know, they're just not two separate realms, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if, I, I don't know. And, and I guess maybe to put a little bit more like specificity, like, uh, like think about the connection with black churches and the civil rights movement, right? I mean, black churches going back for centuries have been places for, where black people can literally feel safer relatively um to have their own community you know community to have their own dialogues to have their own discussions of the tragic abuses they were encountering mm-hmm. um but they also were places that um ultimately very often nurtured people who were felt 
empowered and, and strong enough to go out and confront the state. And that would be an example where I don't think like people weren't like, let's make black churches so then we can confront power. But I think those two things, you know, were always in conversation and in their distinctive realms. But I think that's an example of how places can, you know, that they're, they're not, they're not just like separate. Does that make sense? Well, I think you're coming around to a Rousseauian uh, example um, mm. of recent times, you know, in the, in the civil rights movement is that would be a community that is built around a sense of virtue that is, you know, counter to the, I don't know, maybe I'm reaching, but uh, to the kind of status quo. Mm. Right. And in one sense, that sounds like Rousseau, but in another sense, he is in support of the state as kind of directing things. So I don't know if that really would be an example, but I thought that was interesting. It did make me think of the the reading that we did. Right. And and, and I guess what, what, you know, is kind of fun is that like trying to give an example, a more concrete example of, you know, like creating, like you said, like, cause I, I did like what you said, like creating a different space, creating like a, a you know, but, yeah. but, but at the same time ha- that, that, that they need not be like, completely separated or quarantined from one another. Like you don't have like Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell in this world. And then you have like these kinds of spaces of, of exploration and development and, 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 you know, those that can happen, but there are times where in moments where they come into contact and can actually effectuate change. And I'm not trying to be like sappy. I mean, that just historically is true. Um, and, and there's many cases where people have attempted to confront authorities in, in based on some virtue claim or, or justice and, and have been, you know, roundly suppressed. So, I mean, I, I don't, it's a mix, but I, I, I think we don't ha- really have any, anything else, but I, I, I do think there is ability for both and to both create these separate spaces. That's been you my whole about. point. That's and, been my whole point is that there's multiple things going on. There's multiple ways to address you know, these, these problems. And we're sort of talking about several of them. This has been um, amazing. And uh, I, I, I think we could, I could probably go on for another five or six hours and uh, yeah, maybe some people listening now are shuddering at that very notion, but uh, <laughs> I think we, well, and actually we want, you know, we, we had had, it had uh, entertained um, the idea of, of talking about kind of uh, Rousseau and Nietzsche and, and that came up a little bit, but maybe we can uh, try to, um, schedule a, a, a kind of part two where we, where we take that on. But I, I, for sure. me, what, what, and, and I don't think Rousseau is perfect and I don't, I don't want to like to engage in hagiography. I think, I think he's a really interesting thinker. And I think our discussion today, um, really demonstrated that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, w- you know, that he brings to bear a lot of ideas that just speak to now that encourage, um, people to, push their thinking forward or push each other's thinking forward. And, and, and so for me, I think our discussion today really laid bare how important Rousseau is and how much he has to say about the world, because I mean, we really just did like, okay, let's, let's, let's like read some analysis and then just go from there. And, and I think a lot of really um, interesting kind of discussion came out of that. Yeah. And also to, you know, it's not just about Rousseau, but it's about Gerard's you know, how he's reinterpreting Rousseau in a way, um, you know, what's painted here is, um, you know, that there's these French thinkers after Rousseau who kind of buried him and, and said, oh, he just believes that we should all, you know, put on bear skins and run out in the woods. Right. And, and he's showing that that's not anything of what Rousseau was saying. So 
this is what great um, scholarship does, I think, right. is to bring out a different way of thinking of somebody. So I was happy to read this. Right. And in and I've read elsewhere too, like, you know, people who are again serious scholars of Rousseau and, and, and have a deep appreciation of work really kind of wince at this like pat line that like Rousseau was the theorist of the French Revolution because, uh, you know, Rousseau was not a revolutionary and was, was quite conservative. That's more Vol- Voltaire, isn't it? Right. Yeah. But there's often this phrase, like there's a kind of pat phrase that you'll hear, like Rousseau is the theorist of the French Revolution. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, Rousseau was a man, you know, and that's where I think Rousseau is interesting. He is a theory. He is a theorist of emancipation, um, but he's, a, he's also a theorist of, you know, that has very conservative tendencies. Yeah. Right. And, and I think we often in our binary there, like, where would Rousseau fit in? Right. Because it is like, are you for conservation? Or are you for emancipation? I think Rousseau, um, whether he, you know, is exactly right by just trying to even, um, square that circle is, is, is something that I think for anybody would be provocative. Right. And, and interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way to kind of, um, find a little space outside of the, the discourse as it is often constructed now. Yeah. And I mean, and, and, it, and it bears mentioning, I mean, you know, he, he Rousseau was, um, you know, had many, many blind spots and what, and was a, even for his time, probably a, a, a fairly, um, staunch, um, sexist, right. Which is, you know, so, you know, like I, and I'm only saying were. that, not to, yeah, but I mean, Rousseau has some, some pretty like, yeah, it's, it's not good. Um, but I'm only saying that because I don't want to, I think one of the worst things you could do to somebody whose work you're trying to appreciate is engage in like kind of a hagiography or like, you know, lionization. And I don't want to say I'm doing that. I think he's really interesting. No, I'm not either. Yeah. I think he's an interesting thinker. He's not somebody that I'm going to adopt for my worldview of things, but it was, (laughs) it was mostly, I was kind of grateful for Gerard for bringing out this aspect of Rousseau that I think is interesting because I've never been um, a Rousseauian myself. Right. And, and I, I do think there is a lot that, um, a lot of valuable things he has to say about our current condition, um, and, and it's, it's pathologies, um, which I, in, in that, again, there's something about the, the kind of mid to late moderns, um, in terms of political thought, um, or even philosophy that I think are really valuable is that mm-hmm. they were looking at the development of capitalism, industry, bourgeois society mm-hmm. at its beginning. And I think mm-hmm. they looked at it with a much different set of lenses than we're even capable of because well, we've been it's because we can't, we it. don't have, we don't, ha- they didn't have the lens we have and we can't possibly have the lens that they did. I mean, we can look at it historically, but right. we can't, we can't imagine this is something Heidegger pointed out. We just can't imagine the thought processes of, of people who were mm. around, you know, three or five. Right. Years. But there's just, and, but there's just kind of a temporal component to it that they were there when it was starting. Right. And so I think that gave them a a fresher view Mm -hmm. of these things. And that doesn't necessarily mean a better view, but a fresher view and and one that I think is ultimately more penetrating than a lot of the the views we're um, capable of because we are kind of enmeshed in, in a certain Kind we are of. clouded by information. Right. Oh, that's a good line to finish on. Uh, thank you so much um, for having me on your show. And Jim, thanks for coming on my show. We're doing a, uh, you know. Yeah, you uh, bet. And let um, me uh, return the thanks. Kevin, thank you for, for um, having this conversation. It's been really interesting. As always. Thanks so much. Have a good one. All right. Thanks to you, Kevin. Have a good one. <laughs>